0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com The suggestion was that we speak tonight about the question of individuality. uh, Discovering one's own uniqueness in a world that seems to be very conforming, uh, normative. What's the Torah approach to the problem of discovering one's own uniqueness? I would like to do this in two parts with your permission. First, look at the theoretical background, if you like, the concept of being an individual in a context, in a team, part of the Jewish people, part of the human situation, a detail in a universe. What does that mean from a spiritual perspective? And then, let's try to apply that on a practical level. How do you discover what is your own particular unique path? And how do you help children, when you, when you bring up children or students, how do you help young people discover their own uniqueness? Is that okay? Can we do it like that? Mm-hmm. Of course. Okay, let's begin with a difficult subject of looking at the, if you like, the spiritual background. What is the meaning of a part in a whole? A very beautiful way to approach this is found in the writings of Rav Desla. He has a marvelous exposition of how complex entities are constructed out of details. And let me share that with you. He says that if you examine the world, you will find that there are three levels of organization in the world. What he calls three levels of Seder. The third one, of course, is the one that we need to study deeply. But let me run through all three levels to give an insight into that deepest of levels. He says that the first level of order in the world, he calls it the shame Seder. The world is organized in such a way... That it has a certain symmetry. Right, The world is organized. You can describe it in terms of mathematics, in terms of laws of physics. The world is an organized place. That is a feature of the world. And incidentally, we reflect that Seder in our minds. We see the world, and we're able to perceive its ordered structure. And not only that, but we resonate with that structure in a way that depends on our own inner order. For example... That thing does it? Yeah. Can we switch it
1: off? Yeah. So yeah. it's not breaking this.
0: That No, no, good, good.
1: good.
0: no, no, good. Yeah, we resonate with the order in the world depending on our own inner structure. For example, let's say you are in a situation of symmetry. You're on a train journey, right? And that is a rhythmic symmetry, clickety-click, clickety-click, clickety-click. How do you respond to an environment of order like that? The answer is, it depends on your own inner order. If you are symmetrically disposed, you are going on a journey that you are enjoying to a longed-for destination, and everything is fine and right with the world, that sound is wonderful. That rhythmic clickety-click, clickety-click, in it you hear all sorts of musical cadences, and it's wonderful. Soothing and rhythmic. If you are going on a journey that you are dreading, and you're in a state of inner turmoil, that sound drives you crazy. The reason is that the inner disharmony is being mocked by the outer harmony. If you come home one day after a... Perfect day, like I'm sure you always all have, everything goes right for you, doesn't it? And you come home, everything's right with the world, and you walk into your house and you find that all the furniture's fine, but one chair's a little out of line. The tendency is you walk over and you put it in line and everything's fine. Your inner harmony seeks to see an outer harmony reflect in the world. If you come home from work one day when everything's wrong and you're going through inner t- turmoil and chaos and everything in the house is organized, Your tendency is to walk in and kick it all out of line. And usually it's not only the furniture that gets kicked around, it's usually... (laughs) She said the dog. (laughs) But that is what happens. In other words, there's an order in the mind that is reflected or reflects an order in the world. This is a fantastic principle that has many applications. I'll share with you just a wonderful insight that I heard Rav Destas tell me, Rav Miller and Gateshead used to put it like this very beautiful insight. You know that. Are you into art in Chicago?
1: Yeah, art
0: and culture. He made a fascinating observation. You know, if you're a student of Western art, you will know that in all art forms in the West, over the last four or five centuries and possibly more than that, there's been a fascinating progression of disintegration. You know that we have a notion that before the Mashiach comes, the system of the world will break down. That the ordered symmetry of the world will break down into chaos, and the messianic phase will be a rebuilding of a new order out of a broken old order. And he points out a very interesting thing. If you examine all Western art forms, you will notice that within each of them there has been a consistent (coughs) destructuring. Right? That means that, take any art form, take poetry. If you go back to a Shakespearean period, poetry was extremely symmetrical. A Shakespearean sonnet right, is a very organized and ordered thing. It goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Modern poetry is nothing like that. In modern poems, there's no rhythm, there's no rhyme, there's no spelling, there's no you know it's just <laughs> disordered, right? If you look at painting, as Robert Miller used to say, there was a period in the in the history of painting when a painting of a bowl of fruit used to look like a bowl of fruit. Today, right? I mean, if you go back to the great masters of 400 years ago, and you see their paintings, they are unbelievably perfect in re- being representational. Today, a modern modern art. You know modern artists? The fellow throws a can of paint over his shoulder. He gets his cat to walk around on the. Yeah. Yeah. Then he sells it to the Metropolitan Museum for a million dollars with a little sign saying, angst. You know? You, know? you may be a fan of modern art. I don't happen to be. But that's not the point. The point is that there's a remarkable disintegration. If you would have gone back 400 years ago to the period of the Dutch masters and showed them a, modern, a work of modern art, they would have think there's something, they would have think that you're psychologically problematic. Right? <laughs>
1: um,
0: music. Music. If you go back a few hundred years in Western music, you find that music was extremely symmetrical. You go back to the Gregorian chants, for example, are extremely rhythmic and repetitive. You come to the Baroque period, Bach and his contemporaries, music is extremely mathematically symmetrical, right? As you move forward in musical history, in the Romantic, in the cl- classical period, after the Baroque period, things are much freer, but they are still very organized. When you get into the Romantic period, Beethoven's later period, then you find things much more expressive and free, but still very organised. And when you start getting into modern music, and postmodern music, you know, when Stravinsky, for example, began writing music on an atonal scale, the first time his the first time the first public recital of Stravinsky's music in Paris, the audience was so offended they tried to kill him. The police had to escort him from the order. They were so offended by hearing 8 tonal music. Today, that's completely normal. Today, there's a composer who composes on the staves of a mobile. That means as the thing moves in front of the pianist's eyes, he plays what he sees. There's another modern composer who puts his cat on the keyboard and sticks it with a pin. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. As the cat tries to get off the piano, people listen to the music. There's a famous modern composer called John Cage. His most famous piece is 4 minutes 33 of... Are you going to do this? Talk with me. His most famous piece is 4 minutes 33 of silence. And believe it or not, there are famous recordings. You can buy famous recordings of John Cage's 4.33. Now, had you done that a hundred years ago, they would have had you committed to an insane asylum, right? That's a remarkable thing. As you move architecture, if you go back in the classical architecture, things are extremely symmetrical. In modern architecture, unless you have one purple wall and one green one and like, you know, things at different angles, like it's boring. Theater. You go back to Greek drama. The Greek drama is extremely stylized. <coughs> a tragedy or a comedy has certain rules. Today, theater is known as theater of the absurd. There's a famous modern play that consists of two garbage cans on the stage. Every now and then the lid of one of them opens and a head appears and says something existential and then he goes back and the lid closes. Right? Is the message clear? And this applies to music, literature, drama, painting, sculpture. Go back to Greek sculpture. When you look at a Greek sculpture, or later, you'll find unbelievable representational detail. Every muscle, every sinew can be seen perfectly. If you go to an exhibition of modern sculpture, you'll find a few tin cans welded together. You'll find this new thing in sculpture called situation art. You know what it is? Exhibition of sculpture. You, you see a fellow standing there like this. Like, that. that's the sculpture. And when he gets tired, he goes and has a coffee, then he comes back and he stands. Like, that's... There's been a very interesting progression from order and symmetry into disorder. If the notion is that art is an outer expression of the inner consciousness of a generation, there's a very interesting statement about our culture that we are now comfortable with asymmetrical and chaotic expressions, whereas once we were... You know, if you live, I live in England now. If you go to Wordsworth's house, which is now a national monument in the Lake District, you walk into this very ornate home... And the first thing they show you when you walk into the drawing room, as you come through the door, the guide shows you that there's a door in the opposite wall that's an exact copy of this door, and that door's a fake. But the reason there's a door in that wall that's a fake is because people couldn't bear to live in a room that wasn't symmetrical.
1: Do
0: you understand? They put a fake door in one wall so that the room... Can you imagine anyone doing that today? People were uncomfortable in an asymmetric Environment Today, that's not true. Anyway, this is his observation about the concept of seder le shame seder. That's the first level. Let's go to the second level. The second level, by the way, by the way, the ballet Musa say the same thing. That a person's inner state is reflected in his outer state. Now Simcha the great Musa master, they say that when he used to go and visit his son in Yeshiva, he would not go and interrupt the boy's learning. First, he would simply go into his dormitory room. If he found the boy's room neat, then he knew that his mind was neat and ordered too, and he didn't disturb him. But if you, yeah, so think about your own room and your own environment. What does it say about your about your inner state? The second level of order is what he calls "seder l'shem shame eisav." Order for the sake of its output. Example, you have a library. The library has imposed on its details an order. If you have a library, you have an index. The index is the order that the details are positioned in that order so that the library is useful, right? Here you have an interesting phenomenon as well. Rabbi Khamen Rassaman used to point this out. Very interesting observation. When you have a system of details, the more details you have, the worse off you are if you don't have an index. If you have a library of 10 books and no index, it doesn't matter, you'll find the book you need. If you have a library of 10,000 books and no index, you're in big trouble. You're worse off than if you had only 10, because you'll never find what you need. Abu Hanan used to say, the first goal of learning is to develop an organized mind. What you want a person to develop, a child in his learning, is not facts. The last thing you want is to stuff the kid's head with facts. What you want a child to develop is an organized approach. A powerful thinker is a person who knows how to think in powerful, organized capacity. The facts are irrelevant. If a child has a disciplined and creative mind, he will be a learner. If he knows thousands of facts and he does not have an organized approach, that's a useless information. He's worse off than if he knew less. But by the way, this is one of the reasons why, this is not our subject tonight, it's one of the reasons why it's so important in bringing up children to maintain discipline. I'm sure I don't need to say this in America. I'm sure all the children here are very disciplined. (laughs) But one of the reasons that we are fussy about discipline isn't only because it's good for behavior and for character, it's also good for the mind. Because powerful intellect is always a proposition of constraint. The truth is always limited. How many right answers are there to a mathematical problem? Possibly only one. How many wrong answers? As many as you like. The truth is always constrained. A person of intellectual discipline, what you want to develop in a powerful mind is a mind that is creative, radical, can think outside the box, but always in paths of truth. There's no problem thinking about options that are creative that are false, and many of those as you like. That's not a powerful thinker. A powerful thinker is somebody who knows how to be creative, but constrained by the realities. That truth imposes. It's very important for children to develop that and to have that faculty. So that the second level of order is like an index to a library, and that makes the library useful because it puts each thing in its place so that you can access it, and that is that is important. Here's the third level of order, and this is the one that te- takes a little depth of depth of understanding. The third level of order of Desla calls "Seder the Shem Achdus Order for the sake of unity of function. For example, let's say you have a machine. You have an electronic a radio or an engine, a motor vehicle. You have there the parts disposed in such a way that the thing functions, right? Each component needs to be where it needs to be. You have a car, you need the rubber in the tires and the glass in the windows. If you put the glass in the tires and the rubber in the windows, you're in trouble. Each material, each component needs to be where it needs to be, and then the thing functions. What challenge does this raise?
1: Here's the question
0: Here's the question. What's the difference between the second and the third levels of order? In the second level of order, every book in the library needs to be in its place, otherwise the library is not a library. In the third level of order, each piece in the machine needs to be in its place, otherwise not a machine. What's the difference? Functional. 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 Yeah. Oh, beautiful.
1: Beautiful.
0: I'll tell you. He said that if the library has no index and the books are in disarray, the library is no library, but each book remains valid. You may not find it, but if you do, it's valid. If you move one piece in a machine, not only is the machine, no, nothing means anything. A machine works only because of its integration. If you have an, an engine, and one tiny screw falls out of the carburetor, the whole thing is worthless. This is a level of integration where each piece is so critical to the totality. (coughs) You see, at this level of order, every piece is worth the whole. And the whole needs every piece. It's a remarkable thing. This is deep in the Kabbalistic world. When you have a radio, or a machine, or parts of the human body, or, strictly speaking, the Jewish people, (coughs) and other levels of order in the universe... Each part is not nice to have. Not one more book in the library. Each part is so critical that the others are meaningless without it. And it's meaningless without them. Which means that when each piece is doing what it should be, you don't notice it. But when it falls out, you suddenly... When you're driving your big four-wheel drive monster, right? Your big, these big things that you drive here in America <laughs> that no doubt you can't get downtown, you know, without... Without that, let's say you take that thing where it belongs, which is in Death Valley, (laughs) and you're driving... You don't drive through Death Valley, Nevada? Let's say you're driving through Death Valley in this great four-wheel drive, mostly 500 miles from nowhere, and a little piece of wire or screw falls out of the engine and gets buried in the desert sand, you suddenly realize that little piece became worth your life. While it was in place doing what it should, you didn't notice it. That little piece is so small it's almost silly. That tiny little piece of metal is worth less than the smallest coin. (coughs) But the whole engine needs that thing, and without it you have nothing. Remarkable thing. The highest level of order in the world is structured that way. There are parts of the body, and there are integrated units in a team, in a sports team, in a marriage, in a family, letters in a Sefer Torah. You know how Sefer Torah works? A Sefer Torah works in such a way that if one letter is invalid... You don't have most of a sacred Torah, you have nothing. You know, when people say to you, you religious types, you're so obsessive, (laughs) people say, you know, you say, I'm checking my mezuzah, and the fellow says, why? And you say, in case a letter's cracked, boy, are you obsessive. What does he mean? He means, you know, on average it's there, you can more or less read it. One second, how does he feel when one of his children's being born? If one gene is slightly out of place, on average you have billions? No, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. His radio is not working. Ask him why. Because a little wire is cracked. You tell him, yeah, but 99% of it's there. You know, what's the problem? Radios don't work that way. One tiny, meaningless little piece of wire with the slightest defect, the whole thing doesn't work. A mezuzah is a living being. A Sefer Torah is an organically alive entity. If there's one letter cracked... It's not that you have the thing on average. That's a critical thing. If that thing's missing, the thing's not alive. We're not being obsessive. We're not being any more obsessive than we are about our genetics or about a piece of wire in your radio. Is this clear? At this level of order, each piece is essential, and each piece swells to the proportion of the totality. It's a remarkable thing. The reason this is deep in the Kabbalistic realm, really, is because here is a way of integrating parts with a whole. Here you have distinct parts and yet there's a tremendous oneness of integration. The way the Kabbalists would put this or are we don't mention Kabbalah <laughs> Ramakar. <laughs> the way they would put it is that if you examine each part you will find the whole in each part. Because from one perspective the whole needs that part. You know, the world reflects this. You know, if you take a human body and you take one cell from any part of the body, you find in that cell the genes of the whole body. Isn't that amazing? If you take a cell from the bottom of your toe and you examine the genetic component of that cell, you won't find the genes for toes. You'll find the genes for the whole body. That's amazing. You can take any cell of your body and grow... Your whole, you could make a copy, why you'd want to do that beats me, but if you wanted to make a copy of yourself, you could do it from any cell in your body. Do you know if you take a twig from a tree, the finest sliver of the bark of a tree and plant it, you grow the whole tree. You don't need to plant a seed if you know how to do it. Each part, isn't that amazing? If I were building the human body, I mean, no one asked me, you know, but if I were designing it, I would take the genetic material and I would take the genes for toes and send them down to the toes. And the genes for eyes, I would have them do eyes. But that's not the way Hashem does it. Hashem takes all of the genes for the body and puts it into every cell. That's incredible. By the way, it's a mystery that hasn't even been addressed in science. Do you know that? Science has no idea. You know, when the genes fuse to form a child, the first thing that happens is that one cell gets formed. Just one cell. Father and mother give a half each, and one cell gets formed with one genetic code. Then it divides into two, which have the same genetic material, not half. Then they divide into four, which each have the same genetic material. <coughs> then they divide into eight, which each have, and you can prove it. If you have eight cells or sixteen cells, you can pluck off one of them and grow it, and you get a whole child. You don't get one sixteenth of a child, sort of an arm and half of a half. <laughs> you get a whole child, which means that every cell has everything. And then they become 32, and 64, and 128, <coughs> and they're all identical. You can look at the little ball of cells under the microscope, you can see it quite easily. And if you examine the genes of each cell, they're all exactly the same. And suddenly, some of them start becoming a head, and some become feet. Nobody knows how. How do the cells down this end know that they have to be toes? And the cells this end know they have to be hair? How do they know that? They've all got everything. But suddenly in each cell, the part that has to be, the part that it is, carries on developing and all the others go to sleep. You know, the Kabbalists say that in every mitzvah, there are 612 others that are dormant. The Kabbalists describe the Torah as a tree of 613 branches and every branch is glowing brightly. But if you examine it carefully, you see that behind it are 612 others that are asleep. But they're there. Amazing thing, right? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that you find that the world is built in such a way that in every part, the whole is represented. And one of the meanings of that is that every part is integral to the rest of the part. You know that we have a principle in Jewish thinking, this is a crossover between the Kabbalistic and the Musa field, that states that everything that's true in the world, we have a psychological and emotional resonance with that thing. Where there's something true, we have an innate sense of... Do you know that we have an innate psychological energy that thrills to being individuals and also that thrills amazingly to losing individuality in a relationship? And a psychologist will tell you that that's paradoxical. People like to be individuals, right? In, in, in the conventional psychological terminology, they call it the Lone Ranger Syndrome. Women don't have this. This is a male fantasy. <laughs> of being like, it's all me. You know, uh, what do you play here? You play football, right? That's a nerdy game with all the padding. <laughs> 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 not, not rugby, they a real man. But let's say you play a team, a, a sport, right? So the male fantasy is like, you know, there's 10 seconds left in the match and like they're losing and he gets the ball, right? And in the next 10 seconds, in a dazzling display of absolute brilliance, beats the whole enemy team and his own people getting in the way, and totally unaided scores the winning goal. Amazing fantasy, right? Any male he tells you he's never had that fantasy is lying. <laughs> like it's all me. On the other hand, we also thrill to losing ourselves in a totality. If you've ever had the amazing thrill of being part of a sports team that's working perfectly or a dance display, or a gymnastic display, or anything where all the parts have to function perfectly, it's an amazing experience. You know, at one and the same time, you find you've lost yourself completely, you're part of a mass movement, and amazingly, you have an amazing sense of, this is me. You know, I had the experience of being in the army. I don't know if you've had that experience. I spent a couple of years as a medical officer in the South African army. One of the things you have to do in becoming a soldier, you spend hours and hours and hours learning to march in perfect precision. There's an amazing experience that happens when you're marching in a battalion of 10,000 people where you suddenly get into a rhythm that is almost, it's a magical experience. When 10,000 people are moving in absolutely perfect precision, first of all, you lose all sense of exhaustion. That thing can keep you going endlessly. It becomes a hypnotic experience. You suddenly swell to the proportion of thousands and thousands of people. And yet amazingly, you know, I'll never forget when we did this month after month after month, we finally had a final parade. That's a public display of this precision marching of thousands of people. And the public is invited to watch, including your own parents. And I'll never forget the experience of marching past the grandstand with the thousands of people in public watching, and you're all marching in precision. There's an amazing temptation just to change your feet. <laughs> of course, they'll shoot you immediately, but it doesn't matter because your mother will see you. You, know? You, know? you see, we have this thrill of doing it all on our own, and we also have this thrill of, of functioning in a team where you reach out to a larger proportion than your own Individuality. The reason we have that paradoxical thrill is because that's how the world's designed. You are designed to be a unique individual that the world cannot exist without. And yet, when you do what you ought to be doing, you swell to the proportions of the whole. Let's call it the Jewish people. You know, there are some sources that say when the Torah was given, Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, went around. He looked in each Jew's eyes and he said to him, "You stand here, and you stand there." You know why? Because as the Torah came down, it was given to us, each of us with our own chelek That means each person gets his own unique share in Torah. None of us see Torah the same way. Each of us, each person in learning, has his own style and his own thrill and his own creativity in learning. Each of us has his own chelek in Torah. As the Torah comes down to the world, I must receive my portion. And I have to stand where I have to stand for that. This is called diglay midbar. The Jewish people marching through the desert, marching formation. There's a very deep reason for that. When the Torah comes down, if I'm standing in the right place, I receive my spiritual portion, and it connects with everyone else, and the Sefer Torah is valid. If I say, don't tell me what to do, I'm going to stand here. What happens? I impinge on somebody else's space. I cannot receive that portion, it's not mine, and mine falls onto the sand and becomes wasted, and the whole thing's invalid. Maturity means knowing where you have to stand, giving up all your immature, infantile desires to be every place else, and it's an immature desire, especially on the part of men, to want to be everything that they're not, and not to be happy with what they're supposed to be, to devalue what it is that they are, and fantasize only with the jealousy of wanting everybody else's. Maturity is exactly opposite of that. Maturity means being in a family or in a marriage relationship, to know where you have to be, lose all degrees of freedom that your fantasy and your jealousy tempt you to, to know that this is where I express myself, and not only that, you all need me to be here. Amazing thing. And that's the third level of order. This is very often misunderstood in the, let's call it, religious world, in the frum world. People on the outside have this concept that if you're an Orthodox Jew, you're a robotic, cl- cloned copy of the next individual. Nothing could be further from the truth. I would argue that that's the model in the secular world. Maybe slightly different colors, a little different perfume, a little different style. Very often chasing the same goals in very similar ways. That's not the path of a person of spiritual greatness. A person of spiritual maturity knows that he has to be seeking his own path. The fact that you may wear a uniform that is similar, or you may make certain moves that are similar. You know, the fact that we have to do the similar actions does not mean that you're not an individual. When two great musicians play a piece of music perfectly, they play every note exactly the way it's written, the two pieces sound nothing like each other. Each one, not only that, a great musician will tell you that every time he plays the same piece himself, it has a different... Because he becomes one with that, and it's an expression. You know, when one of the prophets was asked to prophesy, and he was in a state of tension. To be a prophet, you have to be in a state of ecstasy. So he called for music. And it says there, Bahaya kenagain hamanagain that when the musician began playing, the deep translation of that is when the musician became the music. Right? I once had the privilege of hearing Arthur Rubinstein play the piano (coughs) many years ago in St. Louis. And someone went up to him and asked him, what's your favorite piece? And he said, the one I'm playing. Mm. Whoa, that's the way it ought to be. So, to be part of the religious, so-called religious world means the opposite of being a cloned copy of the next person. And you, where, you know where this is worst misunderstood in the religious world? There. Not there. Because <laughs> people think that in women, to be a religious woman, a Torah-observant woman, you have to be a totally... There's no sense of individuality. You're just somebody else's echo. Right, ladies? Sometimes. It's a bad mistake. Yeah, an interesting experience. Here's a situation that occurred to a c- certain young lady. Brilliant, amazingly talented young woman. The fact that she's my daughter is completely irrelevant. <laughs> 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 so when she, was, when she was 19, she came to me and she said to me, Abba, I'm ready to get married. Find me a victim. Uh, find me a, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I went to my Rebbe. And I said to him, You know, she wants to get married. You know, should I? He said, No, not yet. Not yet. 19? That's over the hill in the religious world. That's like, Oh, you know, 19? She finished SEM. She spent three years in Gateshead SEM. Now she wants to get married. She wants to get married. And he said, No. I said to him, Why? He said, Because she's just finished her seminary training. She's about to go out and become a teacher. She's not yet had time to assert her own uniqueness in a way that will lead to a relationship with somebody else where they are both fully expressed unique individuals. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. She's in danger of relating to somebody else simply as his echo. And you have two young people who have no content, each one simply echoing the other's emptiness. What sort of relationship is that? Let her express it. And she went out and began teaching, discovered amazing talent and her own skills, and then met somebody who had similar type of skills, and it was a real relay. Amazing thing. So that to be a woman does not mean, or to be a religious individual does not mean that you're a mindless clone. You need to be discovering your own unique talent in the Torah world, right, and part of the Jewish people and part of humanity in general, so that you bring that unique music to the symphony of human expression, so that it is rich because we are all different, and not boring because we are all supposed to be similar. This is a message that often is not correctly understood. So far, so good. Can we now move to the more practical? Yeah, can we do that? Just let more more energy? Absolutely, please. Okay, that's the theoretical background in terms of how individuals are meant to be expressing themselves. Not like the conventional mindless idea that to be part of a team like... The Torah world or the Jewish people in general means that we all have to be doing the same thing. Not at all. Yes, we are often doing the same moves. We say the same words in the Sidru. We do the same mitzvahs. But that is because we are reading the same words in the Sidru because we want to play the music written by the greatest composers. right? If you're going to go play great music, you play music written by a, a, a competent master composer you may be, rest assured, the music's probably going to be better than if you make it up yourself. But your expression will bring out that music. A siddur is a musical score. The words are written there because they are the greatest words. But you play the music. When you perform the mitzvahs, when you cut your fingernails in the right order, or tie your shoelaces in the same order, and you get down to the minutiae of halakhic material, that's not to make you a mindless clone. That's for you to play the music with the most beautiful notes, so it comes out to be your music. That should go without saying. Let's turn for a few moments to the practicalities and see if we can understand how this should be applied in the the real world. (coughs) Obviously, the problem is, if I am meant to be an individual, then how do I discover what is unique about me? All All this theoretical background is fine, but what am I meant to be doing? And here's the answer. If you know what your unique talents and abilities are, you will know what you must be doing in the world. You were given a set of abilities and a set of talents and a set of desires and longings that set you apart from everybody else. No two soul structures in the world are the same. If you know yourself well, you will know what your role must be in the world. So let me share with you an approach to that problem. I would say that the way to approach it is like this. Life consists, I would say, of two phases. Phase one lasts until you're about 18. Phase two, from then on. Phase one is for discovering what makes you special. Until you're 18, if you didn't do it then, you have to do it later, is for flexing your muscles and spreading your wings and finding out what's unique about me. Then you get to a phase in your life where you know what your raw abilities are, The time has come to begin expressing those, so that you become the world's greatest exponent of that constellation of factors that makes you unique. And I think the way to do it is very practical. You're 18 years old, and if you didn't do it, you do it now. You go home tonight, you sit in a room by yourself, you close the door, you breathe deeply, you meditate, and then you take a big chart of white paper and you draw on it a circle. And into the circle, you put all the things, you write all the things that are unique about you. All your talents, all your abilities, all your, the things that you strive for and that you long to do and be and that you enjoy doing. All your raw talent and ability you put in the circle. And outside the circle, you have the courage to write all the things that are not you. If you do this well, you will end up with a picture of the uniqueness of your own personality. That's all that's needed. You know, Hashem creates the world. He gives you... You know, if I... Let's say we are going to build something important. (coughs) We're construction workers, right? you all the workers. I'm the foreman. I take you... I don't say a word to you. I march you to a certain place on the building site, and i put you there, and i give you a bag of tools. I don't need to speak. Look around where I've placed you, and see what tools I've given you. And you will know what you have to build. You were born in this generation as a Jew... In Chicago, in the modern world, in all the parameters of your own unique good looks, your own incredible intelligence, your musical all the details were given to you. Look around you. Where has Hashem put you? And what tools has He given you? And you know what you have to build. The world around you needs a lot of building, in case you have not noticed. The world around us is a brutal mess, in case you have not noticed. The Jewish world around us is going up in flames, in case you have not noticed. Do you know that The calculation made recently is that over the last 30 years in this country, about 30,000 Jews have been brought in through various aspects of the so-called Kiruv movement. In other words, for the last 30 years, more or less, there's been an effort to reach out to Jews who have no background, right, in various ways. And the calculation is, although no one knows the figures accurately, probably about 30,000 Jews have changed their lives significantly to become more attached to Torah. In the same period that those 30,000 Jews have been brought in, 700,000 have disappeared. In a census done three years ago in America, 52% of American Jews claim no point of contact with anything Jewish at all. Not religious, anything at all. They don't belong to a Jewish book club, a Jewish weightlifting club, a Jewish community center. You're talking about more than 50% of American Jews today being prepared to intermarry, not because they don't want to marry Jews, because they don't even know that it's an issue. They don't know that their grandparents were tortured to death just because they were Jews. They don't even know. You know, I don't know if you take an Italian boy from the streets of Bensonhurst, or wherever they live, that he has less concept of his own national pride and identity. If you take a Zulu kid from the streets of Durban, he has more national knowledge and identity and pride than most Jewish college kids today. So there's a lot of stuff that has to be built. And you were placed with your gifts and your unique abilities at this point in space and time. Look what Hashem has given you. So you put into the circle all the things that are uniquely you. You know when you do this with youngsters you see a remarkable response. You do this with 15 year old kids and you get them to draw the circle. The first thing you see is tremendous joy. When they, sod- when they suddenly see what it is that I actually am. And the second thing you see is they lose a sense of jealousy. Because young, youngsters often are fantasizing, why does she have all those? Why does he have and I don't have? The answer is because he needs that for his path in life. That's not your path. You couldn't use that tool. This is your path and these are your tools. When you see the world that way, it's a remarkable thing. By the way, if you do this with kids of seven and kids of 17, you get a radically different response. You know that? If you take a class of seven year olds or eight year olds and you say, Children, write me a list of all the things that are good about you, they never have enough paper. You know that. Your kids just keep writing. No matter how long you give them, they just keep writing. Try the same thing when they're 15 and 16. The poor kid sits there with a blank piece of paper, can't think of a single good thing about himself, and is completely convinced that every other kid is writing long lists. Somehow between the ages of 7 and 17, we managed to beat out of them. One great Torah authority said that people become great because of their junior school teachers and despite their high school teachers. That's what he said. Uh, Present company excluded, I'm sure. (laughs) Anyway. The thing is to take a child and you give him a sense of his own unique abilities, right? By the way, this is why we don't compare children to each other in a Jewish school. Do you know that in a Jewish school we do not read out grades in the classroom? Never. Because when you read out grades in a class... What happens is a little kid feels like a failure because he got less of a grade. He might have tried much harder. I don't know how it is in America, but in other places, if you feel like having a heartbreaking experience, let's say you want to get depressed. <laughs> Go to a junior school prize giving. You know how one of those places? There's a little sea of expectant seven-year-old faces. Now they start giving out the prizes. There's always one obnoxious, abnormal child right? He probably had his brain irradiated when he was a fetus. He gets all the prizes. You know that kind of kid? And next to him is a little seven-year-old whose heart is breaking, because he'd give anything for a prize, but he's not going to get one. That's not education, that's assassination. They all got to get prizes. When they're 15 years old, then you can be brutally unfair. You know why? Because life's unfair, they have to learn. But not when they're seven and don't understand that. Every kid's got his own beauty. Right? If you give, I don't know how in America, in England, in South Africa, there's charts on the wall where the kids get stars. You have that? Yeah. Math, you get a gold star. Spelling, you get a star. If you don't have a chart for middis, that means good character, you know what you're teaching the kid? You have to, have, when the kid gets, shares his sandwich with another kid who hasn't got a sandwich, he needs to get a gold star for that. Otherwise, you're teaching him what we care about is calculus and math and spelling in Zulu or French, or whatever it is, but we don't care if you're a, a manch. Every kid, a kid who can share a sandwich and can't add two numbers together in math is probably better suited to life than the kid who can. Because he'll be a much better friend and husband and father than the kid who can do calculus and doesn't know how to share sandwich. So every child has to have his own uniqueness and talent brought out. Of course, academics is important, but it's only a little part of the circle. And therefore, you put into the circle all the things that are you. And you have the courage to exclude all the things you fantasize about because they're not you. That is a mature development of the sense of self and the image of self that's necessary. Let me be clear here about one thing. We are talking about putting in the circle things that are unique. We're not talking about things that are essential. Again, before you talk about the circle, it has to have two bases. The first base that is everybody has to have is being a decent human being. The second base is being a responsible and loyal and fulfilled Jew. The third thing is the circle. The circle is your unique flavor. You can't say, well, I'm going to walk around punching people in the teeth because that's like not part of my circle. Uh-uh. That's part of the base. Part of the base means being a decent human being. And by the way, being a decent human being means only two qualities of character. It's all you need. When you bring up a child, you have to ensure that the child has two qualities of character only. What are those? Consideration and concern. What the Kabbalists call the left hand and the right hand. Consideration, don't damage, don't interfere. Don't interfere with anybody else. Don't harm anyone else. Concern, get involved where you can help. You need both. A child needs to know, Emma's sleeping, she's not feeling well. Don't make a noise. That's consideration. But that's not good enough. When she wakes up, take her a cup of tea. Concern. To be a good neighbor, you need to know when to look away, because your neighbor needs space, and when they're not feeling well, take them a plate of soup. To not interfere and harm other people is not good enough to make a match out of you. That just means you don't damage. But that's not good enough. Ask any wife if she's happy with a husband who just doesn't hurt her. You know, he doesn't beat her. Is that good enough? No. He's got to bring flowers every Friday. (laughs) You know, expensive. Flowers. (laughs) That's a capital crime in Judaism, by the way, if you don't do that. Anyway, so the point is that you need two qualities of character. So to be a decent human being, you need to be a considerate person and a kind person. That's not optional. Then you've got certain Jewish obligations. In other words, I would say that putting the circle is choosing one of these. The basis is wearing these. You look a little ridiculous in a shop choosing one of these if you ain't got these
1: on, <laughs> right?
0: First, you need to be decent. Then you talk about style. The circle is an expression of who you are as a unique individual. <coughs> is this clear? And therefore, and therefore, that's what it is. So the exercise is to construct that circle that is unique about you, and everything needs to go into that circle. Not only the conventional things. They think, you know, academics, right? So can you do math? Can you... That's only part of the circle. Are you an empathic individual? Or do people like speaking to you and sharing their problems with you? That's a very important life too. Well, no, people don't get on with you. You like working with machines better. I don't know, you know. You need to know what you By the time a person's 18, they should have a very good idea of the general direction of their talents. An 18-year-old, a person who's leaving high school, should already have a very good concept of whether they're more intellectual or more emotional. They're more artistic or more scientific. There's general currents, right? You Think back to yourself when you were 18. Have you really changed that much? Have you? Have you really changed your basic currents of talent and energy? Have you really? You have? Most people don't. Very hard to change the radical nature of a personality. In fact, even Midas, what you would say characteristic of, uh, of personality is very very difficult to change by the way you know the effort is to change middas, not underlying let's make this clear The Balai Musa say there are two expressions of personality one level is called middas, you call it in English character traits but underlying the middas are things called Tchunois a truna is an energy that underlie, underlies a Midas the middas can be controlled Tchunas cannot be changed example Very important to understand this. A Amidah would be, let's say, anger, (coughs) jealousy, right? That kind of thing. tchuna is a basic mode of character. For example, some people are, what they call in psychology, volatile. Volatile means bubbly, close to the surface, quick to respond. The opposite polarity in psychology is called phlegmatic. It doesn't mean that you cough a lot. It means that you are um, slow to respond, right? The kind of person that's very, very slow to get moving. Those cannot be changed. You can't change those. The advantage of being volatile is that you will respond where action is necessary rapidly. The disadvantage is you'll get angry, you'll say things that you shouldn't before you think, because you respond too fast. The slow-moving individual, the advantage is he won't get angry easily, because it takes him a long time to get worked up when a life needs to be saved, and others have leapt into action, he still hasn't woken up. <laughs> right? Each one has its advantage and disadvantage. You cannot change those. The effort to, of personality development is not to change the tuna. The effort of personality is to let the trunah come out where it ought, and control where it ought not. If you're a volatile person, you want to watch your tongue, and don't get angry easily, and count to ten before you speak. On the other hand, where life needs to be saved, let it out, and act. The person who's slow to respond, that's wonderful. Let that express itself when somebody tries to irritate you and make you angry. On the other hand, you need to overcome that when action needs to be taken, right? Those are the, so in your circle, the first thing you need to identify, of course, is your underlying trunus. Why are you a jealous person? Why do you get angry easily? What is the underlying statement? What does that make? What is that statement saying? What is it telling you about your underlying personality? Let me finish unless you have any questions, I'm very happy to answer if I can, with a description of the problem. The problem is that it's very hard to close the circle. Very hard to close the circle, especially for men. (coughs) That means when you put the things in a circle and you see who you are, it's very hard to admit what you're not. Most of us have a fantasy, especially men, especially young men, that they are actually the world's greatest everything. You know, if you speak to a normal 18-year-old male... say there's a deep w- reason why women usually don't have this problem. There's time we can talk about it. But usually, speak to an 18-year-old fellow. If you scratch beneath the surface, you'll find that he's convinced he's the world's greatest everything. Speak to the same fellow when he's 28 and 38 and 48 and 58 and he's not the world's greatest anything. Well, some of them become morbidly depressed. But most keep right on fantasizing that they are the world's greatest. they just like having no time to get there, but like they'll, they'll do it, you know. See, there's, a, there's an immaturity that says that I must be everything. Maturity is standing where you have to stand. You can't stand here and here and here. The trick is to discover where you must stand so you can be... But it's very hard to close the circle and say, you mean I'm never going to be that? I'm never going to be great at that? That's not me? And real immaturity fantasizes exactly about the things that you're not and doesn't see the value in the things that you are. And that's very, very hard. And the, the difficulty is closing the circle and saying, this is me, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to become the world's, every second of the rest of my life will be dedicated to becoming the greatest master and exponent of this particular person that I am. And admit that I'm never going to be the world's greatest tennis player, the world's greatest tap dancer, you know, chess, whatever it is. That's not you, right? This is the circle. You know, why is it hard to close the circle and why do men usually find this more difficult than women? Usually. Just a brief word about that. You know that the first phase is the phase of the open circle. That's the youngster who's flexing his muscles and spreading his wings, like I said, discovering what it is that's good about him. That is a phase, and you know that children are given a sense of multipotential. Ask any normal five-year-old, what he wants to be when he's grown up he'll tell you the most impossible combination he's got no sense of limitation that's a gift that hashem gives children hashem gives children and teenagers a sense of incredible capacity that's what they need they need to feel the potentiality to explore everything you know many people say to me you know when i was 18 the world was so rich now i used to be able to laugh so richly and cry now that's the way the world is designed it's designed to be rich and larger than life when you're a child and then to close in on you as you get older because that's what's intended. That, you know that children don't have a sense of limitation. It's only as they start... Speak to a young fellow and you shiver. It's more or less marriageable age. hesitates, doesn't want to get married. Why not? You scratch beneath the surface you find, because he looks out at the world of women, there's millions of them out there. <coughs> Each one's more beautiful than the next. Millions. But if he gets married, He'd have just one. (laughs) So he'd rather have the fantasy of many than the reality of one. That's a child's immaturity. Have you ever seen a child standing outside a delicatessen with one dollar in his grubby little hand and 25 different buns and cookies in the window? Ecstatic child. Stands there drooling over all of them and finally, after about half an hour, chooses which cookie he wants. As he's about to hand his dollar over to the man and get his cookie, all 24 others start glowing brightly. You know that problem? If you want to torture a child, this is not a Jewish activity, but if you want to torture a child, what you do is you take a little kid, give him an ice cream. When he's holding the ice cream, give him another one. When he's holding both ice creams, offer him a third. What you'll end up with is a pool of ice cream and tears. Because a kid doesn't understand that you can only have what you can have. (coughs) He wants to have it all. He doesn't understand that maturity means doing what you have to do and doing it well. As kids get older, you start gradually to see that sense. I was walking to shore with my little son when he was six years old. I walk along and he falls silent for a couple of minutes, which usually means he's got a fever. And um, and after two minutes silence, he says to me, you know, Abba, I'm not sure if I'm going to marry Debbie or Frida. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, but you know, Abba, what's bothering me is whichever one I marry, the other one's going to be so upset.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a
0: few minutes later, we reach a... Shul, sure, we walk up the steps and he stops cold on the top step and he says, Abba, you know what I just realized? Whichever one I marry, all the others are going to be so upset.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Confident young man, you know. Um, for the first time in his little life, he starts to realize, you can't do it all. You can only do your limited portion. Right? That's bad news for a child. And most of us never outgrow that immaturity. And that's why men tend to have fantasies. That's why the mayoral says, for example, that a man can marry many women. A woman cannot marry many, first of all, which woman in her right mind would want more than one husband? But a man is a multi-potential being. He does have that ability to spark out in many directions. And therefore it's harder for him, generally, to close the circle. And that that is a particular immaturity that we have, that we resist closing the circle. The reason for this is a very deep spiritual reason we are all cells of a body that have the genes of the whole universe. We are all potentially Adam orisha, the first human being, who had within him all of humanity. So at a very deep level of our psyches, we know that we are almost unlimited in our capacity. That speaks to us very deeply. But on the other hand, we are also a part. That little cell in the bottom of your toe has the genes for the whole body, but most are asleep. Because what he ought to be doing, is toes... You have to have the maturity to know that I am multi-potential. I do extend to the proportions of the universe. But I have to do my unique piece that fits into that, that symphony. In Western society, the opposite exactly is the message. In Torah, the message is, what are you uniquely, express that beautifully. In Western society, try to be everything. In the West, the value is placed on potentialities. In Torah, value is placed on actuality. Childishness, in Torah this is called transmuting, transforming the Bekayach into the Bekayach. Bekayach means take potential and translate it into actual, which is always a limitation. Maleness is always unlimited potential. Femaleness is always limited reality. What's the Hebrew word for female? (laughs) The word Nekevah in Hebrew means to make limited and specific. Asher nikvu b'shemot who are fixed by name. Nakva Alai Shachabeta, fix your wages and I'll give you the, I'll give you an amount of money. The word nikeva, female, means to make specific but real. You know, I'll never forget the amazing experience at medical school of having to dissect the body of an embryo. A little human fetus, you begin to dissect. When you come to the organs that form seed, it's an amazing experience. You have the kidneys, which form organs that become seed-forming organs, in boys and girls. But amazingly, in a little boy and a little girl, they're developing completely opposite directions. In a little boy, the organ becomes an organ that forms seed by the billion. By the billion! In the woman, it becomes an organ that forms seed individually. You know, every month of a woman's reproductive cycle, one egg only is produced. You know what's happening? The male side is producing billions that meet one. And all the billions die. And only one is accepted. Amazing thing. The concept of female means to limit and make real and alive in the world. That's called Nekeba. It means to sacrifice all the potentiality to bring out reality. Why do we always refer to God as male? Why is Hashem always male? Because we medieval, benighted, misogynistic, anti-feminist... No. (laughs) It's because maleness is infinite potential. And femaleness, do you know that in Hebrew, all the words for the earth and the world are feminine. Eretz, Adama, even the word even, which means a stone or a rock which is the basic Kabbalistic notion of a building block of reality, (laughs) is a feminine word. You know what the Medaktikim say? That the word even, stone, the world is formed from even shasir, right? The stone of formation. The word even is a composition of the word av and ben, which means father and son. And then when they come together in the woman, it's a female concept. That's where the transition from... So therefore, all Hebrew words for vessels... For the earth, for the world, those are permanent. Why? Because Hashem's infinite potential is expressed in this particular and finite world. That's what it is. But it's very hard, takes maturity to bring it down. And therefore, to keep that circle open is a... In Western society, they do anything to keep the circle open. For example, example, in Western society, tremendous (laughs) value placed on money. What's the attraction of money? Tremendous potential. In fact, some people are so addicted, they don't even spend much, even though they have much. Why? Because it's the potentiality and the power. That's the attraction, right? A mature desire for money is to have enough to buy certain things. (coughs) Say that, you buy the thing. An immature desire for money is just to have money. That kind of person never has enough. Never has enough. You know, I saw an amazing newspaper interview a number of years ago with the second richest man in the world the second richest man in the world. For two pages he went on about his major desire to be the richest man in the world. <laughs> the man is hounded by unsatisfaction. He has sleepless nights, the man. Because he has a few billion too little. That man's poorer than me. I don't need much to cover my overdraft. <laughs> uh, just a little will put me in the balance. You know. He's very poor, that man. He lacks billions. Money even. you see that in the West. Here's another reason, another expression. In Western society, a child, the birth of a child, youth is a tremendously happy concept. Old age is very sad. You know why? Because when a child is born, you have amazing potential. This little baby could be anybody, could be the mashiach. Who knows what it could be? person who is very old, what can they do? What potential do they have? All they can do is turn their chair a little closer to the sun. Very sad. In Holland today, one of the leading causes of death among the elderly is euthanasia. They have themselves killed. You know that? Why? Because what else is that live for? You know what happens in Judaism? The birth of a child in Judaism is a very anxious moment because he hasn't done anything yet. Old age in Judaism is a very rich joy. Why? Because this person's done it all. Again, what do you want? Money or what money can buy? The person who wants money, a very, the person who wants money, you, want, you don't want to die with money. You want to have spent it to buy the goods. What is life? Life is a gift of potential. Every day has only its potential. When you go to bed at night and the day is gone, that day will never come again. What would a dying person give for one more day? Anything and you just blew it? All you have of the day is what you translated its potential into an actuality. The kind deeds that you did, the kind words you said, the mitzvahs you performed, the the transitions, the development that you made in your relationships, and your own personality, that's exported into an eternal dimension. But the thing is ephemeral, it goes and will never come again. Maturity means not wanting the potentiality, wanting what it translates into as actuality. You know what's amazing, in the literature of the world, Youth is always described as springtime and summer. And old age is always described as winter. In Torah, youth is described as winter and old age as summer. King Solomon talks about, the days of my winter, the days of my youth. You know why? Because that's the correct vision of life. In winter, they break open the frozen ground and put the seeds in. In summer, you reap the crop. In Judaism, a little child hasn't produced yet. Seeds are being sown. But a person who's very old, 97-year-old person, can only turn his chair a little close to the sun. But he's done it all. He had his 17 children and his 45 great-grandchildren and his 600, etc. He's done it all. He's done all the mitzvahs. He's constructed all that reality. What a joy. And therefore, (coughs) we are looking looking not to keep the circle open endlessly and never achieve anything. We are looking to close the circle and making that portion of mine, which is the world that I have to build, making that real. Let me finish with a story. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer if I can. They tell a story about a peasant in, in old-time Russia who was a peasant farmer who had no land to farm. He stood weeping by the side of the road, nothing he could do. And suddenly the Tsar rode past in his carriage, <coughs> very ornate, golden sees this peasant crying and for some reason he's moved, gets out of his carriage he says to the peasant, what's the problem? He's overawed by the presence of the Tsar, he tells him I'm a farmer, I have no land. The Tsar says what's the problem? I own Russia. Drives a stake into the ground where they stand and he gives the man three others. He says walk as far as you want and plant a second stake turn, walk as far as you want, put a third stake in the ground, turn, walk again put a pot stake and the land between all four is yours, a gift from me. Man can't believe it. Takes the three stakes and he starts walking. After a few miles, he's about to put the stake in turn when he says to himself, "I could have more." Carries on walking for a few more miles. He's about to put the stake in the ground and he says, "But why stop here?" And as the story goes, he never stopped walking.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.